what's important at pre-seed is that you move at speed, that you have people that can be helpful around you, and that those people that you bring on your cap table are a good signal to the next round of investors, right? Because no matter what we all want to say, one of the first things any kind of VC that's coming next wants to see is, oh, who invested in the last round? Who's on the cap table? Welcome to episode 16 of our podcast. I'm here with Arnav, and today we have the pleasure of hosting Chad Fox from Fox Ventures. So maybe Chad, you could start us off by telling us a bit more about your story, how you got into the MENA region in the first place, and a bit more on your background. Perfect, Stephanie. Well, thanks first to, to you and Arnav for having me today. Like you mentioned, I run Fox Ventures, which is a early stage fintech focused VC. I would say I call it more of like an institutional angel investor than a bigger VC, but I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. I'm originally Canadian, been outside of Canada for about the last 12 years. I first did a law degree in New Zealand and then started practicing and, and that led me to Dubai. I was looking for an emerging market at the time and you know nobody in my network was smart enough to tell me to just go to San Francisco and figure it out there. So I had some friends in Dubai and that said, hey, come on over and ended up landing a, a job at a, a corporate law firm. And being one of the younger guys there, I was always kind of given the weird and wonderful new technology clients that that walked in the, the door. And, you know, I was very fortunate early that it was a, a German law firm actually with an office in the building right beside where Rocket Internet first set up their their office in the region. And so, you know, one day they walked through the door and, and needed some some legal advice and, and that got put on my desk. And that led me kind of down the, the venture path, so to speak. And just over time, I left that law firm, went to a bigger technology focused firm called Bird and Bird. And then I left one day, you know, I found I was, I figured out at that time I was spending a lot of time with, you know, battling between the partners at the firm and my clients on, you know, fees for early stage companies. And so at some point I made the decision that if I wanted to keep working and advising early stage founders, I needed to think about doing it a little bit differently. And so I originally left and set up my own law firm and then that kind of progressed to where founders were like, oh, now you have flexibility on fees. Do you want some equity? I was like, well, this is quite interesting. And took equity in a few companies that have done really well. One of the first ones that I did is now like over 100x. So I, I kind of saw that and was like, all right, this is the real way to make money was not to you know ch charge for six minute time intervals as a lawyer but to be a really you know, strategic advisor to the founding teams really early. And so that led me to the next phase where I said, if I can't scale this you know, equity for equity for advice business. So I said, what's the next phase? And I started doing SPVs and syndicates and that's kind of led me down to, to where I am now with you know, a small early stage fund and you know doing all the follow-on spvs with, with the syndicate and, and and that's basically you know my my journey from you know in a two-minute introduction i guess that's a that's a super interesting journey and somewhat um untraditional 
I'm sure you know, your ex experiences being a lawyer um, exposed you to a lot of, let's say, things that founders care about a lot, such as you know malicious term sheets, as well as some interesting stories. Uh, is is that something that maybe enabled you to to one day start your own fund per se? So being a lawyer g- gives me kind of that value add and that edge to get into some of the deals at the earliest stages because, you know, I've basically set up Fox Ventures to be extremely founder focused, but also very complementary to to bigger funds, right? So I, I rarely lead rounds. I'm able to write small checks and I'm able to, you know, collaborate with bigger funds in a lot of different ways. And then for any founder, because I only focus on fintech, obviously, it's a pretty obvious sector for a lawyer to be focused on. It's also where like my biggest early wins were. So I started, you know, really just st- staying sector focused. I don't know really any e-commerce startups that really need a lawyer um, on a day-to-day basis from kind right. of day one to their series A. And so I, I carved out this little niche. I looked, I basically reversed engineered it. I said, if I don't want to join a big platform, and I want to do this kind of myself in this way. How does it look? And I said, okay, well, I don't want to be competing with the big funds for leading deals. I want to not sit on any boards because I actually get, you know, have a better relationship with most of the founders that I'm invested in than their board members do simply right. because they feel that they can come to me with any problem and that, you know, my stake in the company is small enough that I'm going to give them unbiased advice at what's the best interest of them and in the best interest of the company. And so, you know, that's kind of the, you know, my wedge into these businesses is being that, you know, basically that advisor to the founding team and helping them through the earliest problems. And and yes, I've seen, you know, everything from good and bad and and my whole kind of ethos around it is, you know, make sure that the founders are fully incentivized to grow a really big business over time, right? So like, you know, I'm I don't let any of my pre-seed founders get over diluted. I make sure that they're picking their, you know, lead investors properly and that like just even too based on, you know, their management style, it may not be the best fit for a certain investor. It might be better for for someone else. And so I try and help them manage all of those things early so that, you know, when they come out of that series A, series B, that the founders still own, you know, a decent amount of their business, right. that we're all incentivized on the equity side to to make it grow really big. And then, you know, obviously help through all the problems. And I almost find it that if a founder doesn't want to work with me, that it's almost not saying this as like that they should, or maybe it's just not a personal fit. But if if a founder doesn't want me on the cap table, I almost find it a red flag because I write really small checks, but add a lot of value. And if they don't want an extra lawyer around, you're kind of like, well, that doesn't really make sense. And and why is that, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be me. Maybe they have someone else that that kind of provides that role. But I think it's a, you know, especially in the fintech space, it's extremely strategic. I probably save my founders, you know, $100,000 in their first year, easy on fees with just the advice that I, you know, am able to give them on a day to day basis. And for me, it's nice because I get in early, I get those, you know, multiples 
that grow quickly and I'm not trying to send them uh, a bill for advice at the end of the month, which they're unlikely to pay until later anyway. And it's, um, I'd rather just be, you know, building equity value alongside them. No, I mean, that's really, really interesting to hear. And I think that segues great into kind of what's happening in the VC space uh, over the last two years or so. From what we've seen, and I think I think you might agree with us, there's been a, a massive kind of disruption in the landscape where, where the earlier rounds, especially on the pre-seed side and even on the seed side, are being disrupted by angels or syndicates or angelist rolling funds, which we'll get into in a second, i.e. you. So I'd love to get your tape on, you know, you, you, you have an events value add to these companies, but on the company side, why are they allowing this to happen? And are they, are they um, incentivized in the right way to, to allow these super angels to come in and displace pre-seed VCs? Are they, do you think they're recognizing the value add that single, single GPs or solo GPs have in their fundraising process? I think for the way that I see it is it all comes down to, you know, the, the partners in the firm or the individuals. But the biggest thing that I'm seeing, founders have more um, choices now. And so, you know, they're less focused, especially at pre-seed and seed. You know, you're not doing an equity round in most cases, right? So you're raising out of a safe. So you're not necessarily having to pick, you know, your board member at that stage. You're more picking the people that can be the most helpful. And in, in a lot of cases, we're seeing that those people maybe have untraditional resources that they're able to use to fund the business, right? And so like for me, I can categorically say that I love working with founders and I hate raising my own fund. And so I'm always looking for, you know, untraditional sources of capital to be able to make the investments in the companies that I want to. And the best ones that I have are obviously my rolling fund and my syndicate because they leave me the most amount of time um, to work with founders. And so I think what we're seeing now in this disruption is one, founders have more choices and so they're able to pick the the best choices for them. And I think at pre-seed and seed, they're optimizing more now for speed and for people that can be helpful versus, you know, brand names, so to speak. And now that doesn't mean that, you know, traditional funds aren't able to get in there, but it's, you know, if you ask me, all right, Chad, how long does it take you start to finish to diligence a company and make an investment? I mean, I can do that in, you know, a week, usually a day if I have to. Whereas, you know, because I am a solo GP, I have the backing of my LPs to, to move quickly. And, and I think that's the biggest reason why, you know, there's just more choices out there and founders at the early stage are learning. They're, they're more educated as well around what's important at that stage, right? So what's important at pre-seed is that you move at speed, that you have people that can be helpful around you and that those people that you bring on your cap table are a good signal to the next round of investors, right? Because no matter what we all want to say, one of the first things any kind of VC that's coming next wants to see is, oh, who invested in the last round? Who's on the cap table, right? right? Like that's still, no matter what, investing is still a a FOMO business to some extent. And so I think if, if a founder optimizes those three things and then optimizes, you know, their dilution, then they're, 
going to have all the options available. And, and that's where people like me have not necessarily an advantage because our advantage is also have disadvantages, but I think there are just more choices for founders out there. So not, not to, I, I might be jumping the gun here a little bit, but what goes into your decision to invest in a company, but more specifically, how do you pick the founders, right? Because you either build or have a good working relationship with the founders. What goes into that decision? Um, so I think, I think for me, um, you know, pretty quickly whether a founder is capable. And then I think the two biggest things I look at are founder market fit and, and the market, right? And then, you know, market timing comes into that on, on the market, right? And so, um, you know, one of the things that I've seen, you know, recently, Lean, especially in Mina, is there's you know some founders that are probably really good founders, but they've decided to tackle a business that I'm kind of like, oh, I really wish you didn't do that because you'd be you know you're not the best suited for that yeah. opportunity, right? And so I look at and I spoke to you know a few friends that are scouts at you know tier one firms in the U.S. and in a really good market. A mediocre founder can make a really big business, but an exceptional founder in a bad market can, you know, maybe make a mediocre business. And, you know, we all know that venture is, you're not going into an investment to make, you know, three, four X, everything has to be, you know, a hundred X potential and to, you know, those massive risk reward profile, right? And so I always look at, the, the market is the market big enough is the timing right for this market because maybe the market's big enough but maybe they're you know a couple years too early where you know it may not work out or maybe and and that's not always easy to judge and then it's like what does this founding team or founder individually bring to the table that makes them the right person to tackle this opportunity and those are the basic things and then it the last point is like do i want to work with them for the next 10 years and can i be helpful to them do i feel comfortable and that's more of like a gut feeling i think as well versus you know anything that i can write down on paper and that's why like most of the investments i've made come either from you know people that I go out and source myself, right? I look at a theme and find them or they come from, you know, people I've invested with or from people that, you know, I trust quite closely. And so it's, I'm not seeing, you know, doing a lot of deals that, you know, come from, from other sources really. No, understood. And I think you, you, you bring up a really interesting points. One of the things you mentioned earlier into our conversation was your sectoral focus on fintech. I think you mentioned that you did a lot of deals on uh, in your previous roles in the fintech space. Was that the primary reason that you kind of um, found fintech or is were there other reasons in such that the sector was really exciting to you or there was a specific problem that you'd wanted to solve or fund? The reason I chose fintech was was two reasons. First was some of the early companies that I was working with, the the best ones were in that space and also Coming from a legal background, I looked at it and said, okay, if I'm going to carve a niche, I need to be in 
a regulated industry where my skills are useful, right? Like I said earlier, you don't need a lawyer on the day-to-day basis in an e-commerce business or, you know, some something else. And so I looked at like, what are the highly regulated industries that are there? And fintech was the most interesting to me. The other thing was, is in the MENA region at the time, and, and still there was nobody really that focused specifically on the space. And and the other thing that took me kind of out of the, you know, a pure geographical focus was the fact that at that time, you know, four or five years ago, there wasn't enough deal flow that was like, you know, you could do just like a pure MENA focused fintech, you know, investment strategy. And so the way that I look at it is kind of if I took this group of investors and drop them in San Francisco, London, New York, wherever else, Singapore, would they be able to successfully, you know, run this exact same business? And and that's always something I try and, you know, look at it as part of my diligence process. But for right. me is I, I just said, if I'm not, if I don't want to have a geographical focus, then I have to have a sector focus and, and financial services was, you know, one, the most interesting to me personally, and two, the one where I could add the most value. No, absolutely. And just to touch on that geographical focus point, one of the things that uh, I think a lot of VCs are seeing, and I think you're, you are seeing in emerging markets is, you know, a copycat business model. And I think Rocket was, you know, one of the first people to do this, venture building out similar business models around the world. So is that something that you you focus on a lot? You know, we, we see business models transcend into emerging markets all around the world within phases. You know, it goes from from ride hailing and that can go to quick commerce to yeah. the digital ledger companies. Yeah. To maybe now the Brex and the Ramps, we're seeing a lot of them come up in emerging markets. I'd love to maybe touch on that and, and um, ask you whether you think business models are, are truly global and transferable. So the answer is, is the core business model is transferable, but you have to have a deep understanding of the the geography that you're dealing with. And so even from, you know, my own investments, I only invest in places where I have an information edge, right? So you're not going to see me running around, you know, Africa doing a lot of deals because I just, I've never been to half the places that people are putting a lot of money, same with LATAM, et cetera, right? Right. So I think, yes, business models are transferable, but you have to be able to cater to the local ecosystem. And, you know, Kareem was, I think, the best example in the Middle East where they said, all right, we're going to take that Uber business model, and but we're going to do a really, really good job in tailoring it to the local ecosystem. And if you do that, you win. And if you don't do that, then you say, okay, we're just going to drop this model in this ecosystem. You're never going to win because you're not going to have one, the information edge on the local ecosystem, and you're not going to have a cultural advantage, one, building a team and two, dealing with your customers. And so I do think that, you know, many business models work, but you have to have that local knowledge to tailor it to that local ecosystem. And, you know, a good example in the fintech space in our region is, you know, cash on delivery is still massive. Well, nobody uses cash in the US, right? Like that's not a thing that people worry about. But if you go, if you go talk to every e-commerce founder or, you know, the, the BNPL guys or anybody that, or even the digital ledger, anybody that's doing any business, it's like, 
we've had to deal with that. And then um, the other thing is, is like, okay, even the simplest things as opening a bank account in the Middle East is a complete disaster. And so, you know, from the fintech perspective, just having to deal with those hurdles is, is difficult. And then the other side is, you know, we have regulators, but they're still learning on the fly as well. And they're trying to catch up at, at speed. But, you know, the, there's a difference between writing, you know, a beautiful set of laws and actually implementing them and regulating them on a, on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, we're, we're coming from a position where everybody's kind of trying to move at speed. And so you really have to understand how the local ecosystem works to be able to implement those types of businesses. And if you do it well, you're going to make yourself a unicorn very easily because there's a written playbook. And if not, you're going to fail and you're going to fail pretty heavily because you're probably going to raise a bunch of money from, you know, VCs who think, oh, yes, this this can be easily implemented and it's worked elsewhere. So let's, you know, pile a bunch of money behind it. But if you don't have that local nuance, and I think you can look at some of the bigger, you know, failures in in our region to, you know, that's the exact reason why. Yes, they took a, a business model, but they didn't understand the the local nuances is well enough, and they didn't execute on that. And that key driver in why they failed not a business model failure, not an ecosystem failure. It was we didn't realize that we had to make these adjustments, and then when we made those adjustments, the the unit economics didn't work, and so the business was never going to work. So that's the how I look at that. You've had a like a very high level of exposure to deals for a while, and I wanted to see how have you seen the deal structures change since you first you know moved to the region. What are some of the key things that you've seen become obsolete? Yeah, so that's actually a really good story. I've got some extremely interesting stories from the early days of you know family offices and even lawyers in the region that just were uneducated on what was acceptable in venture capital and what wasn't. So I think the best thing I can say is that the ecosystem has evolved over time and a lot of people have put in a lot of really good work educating the entire ecosystem on, you know, standard practices. And you can credit a lot of the the lawyers, the early VCs, the original, you know, angel investors and people that have been successful for a lot of that. Because I can tell you when I was first advising companies, I could tell them to walk away from an investor just based on who their lawyer was or, you know, who the original term sheet that came, I just say, just say no and walk away because they're wanting, you know, just insane terms and wanting to take 50% of the business and wanting a guaranteed return. And, Mm. you know, the investment went in as a loan and had to be repaid. And, And these things just are not acceptable within within venture. And now I think there's everybody's kind of got to the point where there's, you know, standard set of terms. This past week, we saw, you know, the guys in Saudi put out a standard term sheet. We've got that in the UAE through, you know, bunch of the lawyers and associations and, you know, VCs that have all come together and said, hey, this is, you know, best practices based on international stuff. I, I remember when we, you know, first started bringing safes into the region and it was like, you know, it was a yeah. disaster, you know, and convertible <laughs> notes and just how to explain these things. And it's just, you know, they're widely accepted in other places, but 
it took a lot of time on the education side to get the ecosystem there. And I would say, you know, you speak to anybody that was there four, five, six years ago, and they would probably tell you, you know, 50% or more of their time was, you know, used on education of other people in the ecosystem to try and build that out. And I bet if you went back to those same people now, they're probably spending less than 20% of their time doing that because there's, you know, a decent standard that's that's been set. And and that always is going to evolve and change. And, you know, if you don't evolve and change, then you just become obsolete in the ecosystem and people aren't going to deal with you. And then, you know, you might as well change businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, in the regional a VC ecosystem, I do feel that many VCs, I think, including Nua, to be quite frank, is feeling the pressure from, you know, international firms entering the market and, and taking up large amounts of uh, allocation and rounds. Just yesterday, we saw, you know, Rain come, Rain raised a, a large 100 million plus round from Kleiner Perkins. Yeah. So I would love to ask you um, your perspective on, you know, traditional VCs in the region and do you think they've adapted well enough uh, to, you know, increase founder power and uh, friendlier terms? I use the term tourist VC quite a lot, right? And um, I think that a lot of the big funds are going to end up being tourists if they do not bring a local, you know, flavor to it or spend time in market, right? So I think the best thing that any local or regional VC has is time in market, right? They've, they know and have that information edge that those other funds don't, right? And if a big billion dollar fund, you know, comes in and puts 10 million or $25 million into a deal and then walks away from the ecosystem, that's not going to really hurt their business at the end of the day. So it's, I still believe that there's a place for both participants in the market. The best ones that I've seen, you know, execute this is where a big, you know, international VC comes in and co-leads with a regional VC that has the knowledge base and the local experience and, and does that. Where the local or regional VCs are having to adapt is on two things. One, they're having to adapt on speed, right? Because, you know, processes, you know, the bigger funds now are going in and they're beating everybody with speed. And right. then the other thing that they're also willing to offer is they're less price sensitive, right? Because they Absolutely. have a different metric just based on the size of their their funds, etc. And so I think those are, are the things that are there. But I, I caution any, you know, international VC from coming in and not having kind of some local participants on the cap table because again like I said you have to have an information edge anywhere that you operate and I would argue that even you know the deal you mentioned is a very prime example of of how that could go very wrong but that's I'm slightly biased on that but yeah, whenever no, actually, any international... I'd, I'd like to dig yeah. into that, actually. Um, yeah. Because this is something that we're uh, that Nua is seeing. You know, founders today are, are getting higher valuations because there's more money in the market. In some cases, it's great because the founders are more incentivized. However, one thing I think, and, and this I might be wrong here, but founders don't realize is there is still a catch-22 on taking such cheap capital, which is you need to grow into whatever valuation that, you know, an, inter- an international firm places on you. 
as well as if you don't have enough local players or local VCs on the cap table, that, that capital may not follow up. So I'd like to ask, you know, when you're in a position in advising pre-seed startups very early on, especially on the legal side, are you pushing them towards, you know, a kind of local VC, international VC structure? And do you think founders realize that it's not all good taking such cheap capital in a way? So I always take a founder first approach on everything I do. And so my first goal is always to make sure that the founders are most incentivized to build a really big business. Okay. I also try to make sure that they don't make any mistakes along the way. Right. So I don't like, you know, I don't want to see them go and do a down round, but my job as an advisor to these founders is to show them, you know, where their blind spots are and not make the decision on their behalf. And to be honest, I've seen some, you know, regional VCs that have done had the opposite effect where they've over diluted founders really early because they felt that the valuations were whatever they needed to be. And so a lot of the times I will push them founders away from that. But it it's not just because of they're a regional VC. It's because that particular partner doesn't really hasn't evolved their thinking around what is going to build a big business. And my view, especially in the region, is we are limited on talent, right? So if I right. say across all sectors, we're likely to see, you know, 10 to 15, maybe 20 entrepreneurs per year start businesses that are able to make, you know, those outsized returns. As as VCs, you shouldn't, we shouldn't be as concerned about the entry valuation versus getting in on that cap table because, mm -hmm. you know, I've seen a lot of VCs in our region say, okay, I, I am strict on my entry valuation. And then they're just in all the bad deals because they weren't able right. to get in the good ones. And I, I personally believe, and this is why I look at a lot of geographies is that there's a limited talent pool in the region. And so being on that cap table is going to make you more money than not being on that cap table, especially if you were just focused on price. Now, I do make sure that founders try and have a good mix of people, regardless of, you know, where their funds are domiciled or where they are. And right. everything that I do is to try and make sure that we signal properly for, for the next round and also have people that are able to help build the, the company to hit those milestones. So whether it's a regional VC, a super angel, a corporate or an international VC, those are all those things. And the one thing I say to founders is, you know, if a good example, you know, we've seen some of the big funds come in, you know, okay, Kleiner, this is actually their second investment in the region from the same partner. He did a deal in, um, in Pakistan. But again, I call a lot of them tourists because they're, and this isn't a bad thing. They're all going to spend time, but they have more money to to learn and make mistakes. Absolutely. Than, you know, if you make a a, a bad ten million inv dollar investment out of a billion dollar fund, that's nothing. That yeah. they'll claw that back, no problem. If you make a bad ten million dollar investment out of a fifty or a hundred million dollar fund, that's probably going to sink your fund, right? And yeah. so. Right. There's a lot of different things at, at play there. But I think what I always tell founders is there's three boxes that I put investors in, right? There's your lead investor. There's your 
super strong strategic investor, which is kind of your your second seat. And then there's your super value add small checks, which is your third seat. And I always tell founders that we look at those at every round based on on those three things. Who's leading? Who's that kind of strong supporting role? So if you're looking at an international deal, I would say, okay, let's have the big check, international check be that seat one. Let's have that strong regional VC be seat two. And then right. people like me slide into to seat three where we add more value than the cost of our check, right? And, and yep. those are how I, you know, and those are three separate funnels. And if you look at where all the big international VCs have come in, the ones that are doing it properly are, are going in that same way. They're not coming in by themselves and writing checks blindly. They're yep. c- coming in with someone like Nua that says, all right, let's, you know, figure out how this works together. And, you know, that that kind of de-risks everybody because, you know, once a, a big fund, a Klein or a Sequoia, Andreessen, any of these, you know, bigger funds comes in and starts putting money into the ecosystem. I mean, those company, Tiger, whoever it is, you you tend not to bet against those ones because even if you don't think that they made the right decision there, right? Which I can tell you on majority of the investments that I've seen those big funds come in and now, I've felt at least in my own personal bias that they haven't backed the right participant in their sector, but Again, it's you're, are you going to bet against those players? And I think our ecosystem is getting to the point where you can start to make that. But in most cases, you, you're unlikely to bet against the, the player that's you know, brought in one of those big, uh, big billion dollar funds. Because no matter what, I don't care what anybody says, when you bring right. in one of those funds, you're always going to find follow-on capital just because they've got that name on the cap table. It makes the job... A hundred times easier. Yeah, especially in this region, I think like signaling is is extremely important. Well, there there's a lot of people that will say you know people don't have their own opinions on this, but I I would say signaling is important everywhere. But yes, I mean bringing there's a lot of hype around the, when those funds come in and and do something. And the way that I look at it is yes, it's a good signal for other international investors to look at it. But it's also a good signal for local investors. So even if you're not hitting your milestones, you're likely to be able to go to a local investor after someone and said, yeah, they're going to say, oh, you know, I want to be on the same cap table as Sequoia. Absolutely. Right. Or whoever it may be. And, and that's not necessarily a negative. That just shows that our ecosystem isn't mature enough yet to understand where, you know, you have to invest with conviction. Yeah. I'd like to bring the conversation a little bit um, more towards Chad Fox and, and Fox Ventures and um, what you're building and what you've done so far. So, you know, you, after after transitioning from law, you know, you went towards investing in companies, and and the way you did so was via AngelList, if 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 I'm correct on that. I'd love to kind of probe you on, you know, why AngelList, um, and and why did you choose a syndicate model and then transition into the solo GP rolling fund model? If you could maybe touch on that a little bit. Yeah. So the evolution is kind of as follows. I I started off as a lawyer, then I at a big firm, and then I moved to you know my own firm, and then I started, you know, advising for equity, and then. I, my my contacts were like, hey, I want to invest in the companies that you want to do. So I started doing it like offline 
you know, syndicate model by, you know, putting together SPVs, just friends. And then it was just a natural evolution. The next thing I looked at was like, okay, I need a, a platform. And so I invested in one in the UK called Vaubon, which I still use um, yeah, a lot. And, but then I kind of looked in and said, all right, if for me to scale this, I need access to, mo- I, I basically tapped out the the funds of my my network right so yeah i said if you know and and my network was putting in decent amount decent sized checks bigger than what i can get you know from individuals on angelist sometimes but i right. looked at it and said i need this network where what do i want to do right i want to spend 80 plus percent of my time with founders and so i need access to capital and i just piece together capital wherever i can find it whether that's you know, from the rolling fund, whether that's a syndicate, whether that's, you know, scout checks, whatever it may be, I use that as more capital to continue to do what my core thesis is, which is to spend 80% plus of my time working with founders to help them build their businesses. And so going to AngelList was actually out of necessity because they have 40,000 accredited investors on their platform and I could go to them and, you know, raise enough capital to invest in these deals that I wanted to do. And so that's what led me to AngelList. I started with syndicates. I still love syndicates more than anything else because they give me that ability to write checks early. Right. And, you know, spend a lot of time on not fundraising, right? The hardest thing with the rolling fund is that I'm always fundraising for the fund. And I can tell you that I've given up 30% of my founder time to, to raising that money. But the reason I did the fund is because I operate at, you know, pre-seed sometimes before there are those signals available, which is what a lot of syndicate investors want to see is the signals. And so, and also some of the founders, you know, wanted to build in stealth, didn't want me to share their deal with a thousand syndicate members. Right. But I can tell you, you know, I've done a couple quarters on the fund now. I can tell you out of the, I think I've invested in 15 or almost 20 companies out of the fund. I can tell you, I may have lost two deals that I did out of the fund if I would have gone down the syndicate path. Um, alone. And so I think the way that I look at both of those is there are options that give me capital to invest in companies and work with founders. And I'm always going to optimize how I invest in those companies with how much time I can spend with them, right? So I'd rather, you know, I'd rather do a syndicate at pre-seed that invests 200k versus writing a 25k check because my return and our LP's return if it goes well is going to be better than if I did you know a 25 or 50k check out of the fund at their pre-seed and then wrote that you know 100 to 200k check at their seed round the the return is better and I'm able to go and do that so I'm always looking for new ways and testing out, you know, new ways of of funding these companies. And I found that, you know, at least for me, the the syndicate model is good because, you know, within a week or two, I can have that check done. And then I'm, you know, done fundraising until the next company, right? I'm not constantly, you know, having LP trying to raise more money and, and build out the fund and things like that. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. What I promised my founders is 
is that. And unfortunately for me, like my platform at Fox Ventures doesn't really scale very well. And I've done that purposely because founders want to work with me personally, right? If I start handing them off to someone else and they're not getting that same advice, then, you know, I probably lose that edge. And so I have to continue, you know, I write probably less checks than a lot of people do at, at pre-seed a lot. You're seeing a lot of these early pre-seed funds. Now they're writing, you know, 50 to a hundred checks a year. I mean, that's never Mm going to be me. I'm trying to write, you know, get into 20 to 30 companies, um, and then continue to follow on. And the beautiful thing with, you know, doing it, all my follow on through SPVs is that I can, if a company is executing, I can follow on until they IPO, right? I'm, I don't right. have a mandate that says, I don't have limited capital yeah. per se, right, yeah. to follow on. No, that's great. I'd love to understand the pitch to a founder. Um, you know, in this region, I think we've only seen, or I've only personally seen maybe two companies that I know personally that have been on, been on Angelus, and that's on in the RUV model, where it's, it's kind of invite only. But when you go to a, you know, a founder and say, look, you know, I'm Chad Fox, I can do X, Y, and Z, and I'm going to you know, post this deal on, on Angelus to their 40,000 accredited investors. Is there oh, wow. a sense of, of friction from the founders if you go towards the syndicate model? Well, generally, first of all, I don't have access to all 40,000, right? About no, 1,000 people see my deal on a, on a deal-by-deal basis. Now, I'm very transparent with how the syndicate model works, but I will always lead with how I can add value first, right? So I'm always starting with the fact that, you know, how I can be helpful and hopefully that overshadows the negatives of a syndicate. And and the negatives of a syndicate are very simple, right? I have to share your deal with a thousand people. Now, out of that thousand people, some of them might be very helpful and build out your network, right? So you're, you're getting you're getting people, you know, fintech founders, angel investors, family offices, people that are in that have built businesses, you know, you're getting access to a wider network, right? And so that's where that can be seen as a positive. The second thing is I never know how much money um, I'm going to be able to invest in a company. And again, that can be a negative or it can be a positive. Uh, I did it, you know, one, one deal I did, I started off with a hundred K allocation and ended up investing $1.5 million into the company just because there was the interest from LPs and it helped the founder because they had VCs that were taking, you know, the round was oversubscribed, but a couple of VCs, you know, were taking their sweet time after committing to signing and wiring. So they just pushed them out. They said, if you're not going to, you know, do what is required of you, then um, we're going to give your allocation to Chad. And so that helped mm-hmm. the, the company out. And then the third thing is, is it, you know, can take two weeks to, to close out a deal, etc. And And I don't ever see that as a real negative. And so there are negatives or perceived negatives to a syndicate, but it always comes down to two things. One, who is the lead? And if you really want to work with that partner, it shouldn't matter where their capital comes from. And, and that's my my basic view. It doesn't matter whether I have, you know, a hundred million dollar fund or I have to hustle and raise the money on a deal by deal basis, right? If you want to work with me, then I think it's pretty 
simple to accept where my capital comes from as long as you know it doesn't negatively affect the company and i'm i work very hard to make sure one that founders know how i do it and two what the pros and cons are and then three manage any you know negative aspects that that may come out of that and and that's just it maybe the last couple of questions i want to zoom in a bit more on chat fox the the person right so before you made the move to um, investments, is, is there anything that you wish you'd known about VC and about the space before you made that move? So I learned everything just by doing it. I never really had any, but, and even, you know, when I was a lawyer, nobody taught, you know, I didn't have a, a partner at any of the firms that was, you know, super specialized in venture. I just learned by doing everything. I guess that's, something that's been really good for me over the long run but probably set me back like a couple years like i said early like if you know someone would have told me when i was 20 don't go to law school go to san francisco and you know work at a startup and figure out all this stuff i may have ended up in venture a lot earlier but i would have not had the same skills that i had so i I, i'm very kind of grateful for the journey that I've had. But, you know, I think if I, I I do everything kind of like a startup thinks about it anyway, I'm always testing a hypothesis and then turning it into a thesis and whether these things work out or not, if they don't work, then I just, you know, pivot or adjust and, and, and move on. And, and that's, you know, I've learned everything just by doing it, trying it out, testing it out and never really, listening or kind of going down the path that that someone's kind of set out for me and I think that's been a good thing but you know I if I look back it would have been like okay you know find some people that have done it before but when I started in the region there was nobody there that had done it and the people Mm -hmm. that were doing it I looked at and said okay well they're not I don't think that's to the standard that I find acceptable so I guess that probably answers your question, but I just do everything and, and learn on the go. And I think that's adds value to founders is we're all kind of doing the same things, learning it together. And, you know, hopefully I made the mistakes and, and that's what I try and help. You know, when people ask me like, Oh, how'd you start the syndicate or how do we do this? How do we do that? Or, you know, I'm, I try to give time to those people because I didn't really have anything myself and I still am making, you know, a lot of mistakes on, on some of those things and just find figuring out where you fit in the ecosystem, right? Like if you ask me, Chad, why don't you go raise a hundred million dollar fund? It's like, you know, the honest answer is because the amount of time, I don't know if I personally can, even though I deployed, you know, $15 million last year, I don't know if I can raise a hundred million dollar fund or how long that would take me to do and whether it's worth the brain capital that I would have to spend to do it in the time away from my founders, right? Like I'm pretty comfortable doing it the way that I'm doing it. And it's not for everybody and, you know, it wouldn't work for everybody, but I think I've just figured it out as, as I go. So building on that idea of, um, you know, each of us finding our place in this ecosystem, I'm just really curious, why is Chad Fox not a, a founder? Um, I am a founder, so to speak, because I, uh, but why do I not go and operate under one single idea or entity? I think what I figured out very early on is I love the personal freedom, um, that I have 
building the business that I have the way that I'm building it, right? Like people, I get asked by people all the time, will you come and and work for us or can we work for you? And it's always, you know, a no, because I have a list of, you know, I think there's three funds on my list that if they tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, um, come and work for us, I would do it. But mm-hmm. I found figured out probably in my law career, one, that I was not a great employee and two, I didn't want to manage people. Um, mm-hmm. And so those two things, and I figured out very, I know who I am, right? And so I know where I add these, where I add value to founders. I love being in the position that I'm in and being able to help them. And so that's the the simple reason if I decided to go and execute an idea that comes in my head, then I would have to effectively, you know, give all that up. Whereas now I can put, if I have an idea, I put it into someone's head and they go and do it and probably do a better job than me. And I get to live vicariously through them. But yeah, um, I've never really had the urge to build out a platform on on anything that's there. I love kind of just being doing what I do. Arnav, what about you? Actually, just switching uh, the. It's a great question, and I echo a lot of you know Chad's thoughts. It's it's a great position to be in, especially from a learning perspective to to live vicariously to the founders. You know, there's so much changing on on a daily basis, and there's so many exciting you know business models that come up that come about that it is just, there's too many interesting ones to choose from. Yeah. So I think I think Chad echoed a lot of the thoughts. Like you want to be there helping them and living vicariously through them, and and hopefully one day I will be one of. Them. And I think that's a a good point. You can never kind of say no, and I think the biggest thing that you have to have is extreme conviction in what you're doing. And I yeah. think for there's there's a lot to be said for people that have operated businesses and and been successful or failed because they've got empathy towards their founders. I have extreme conviction in what I'm doing right now, but that obviously could change, you know, over time to and evolve into something else. But I think just that extreme conviction is super important. And I think at least for me, the value that I'm able to bring to all these founders is I've been through, you know, the good times and and a lot of bad times with a lot of founders. You know, I've been that 3 a.m. phone call when, you know, something negative has happened and so I've I've lived that with with a lot of founders, you know, that is experience that I'm able to kind of build on and help other people with. And so for me, you know, I think based on that kind of extreme conviction, I'm pretty happy with where it is. But if if something changes and it's like, all right, I'm the only person that can do this in this market and it requires you know, me to be the founder CEO of it, then then that's a decision you go and make at the time. And I think it will happen, you know, to everybody. It's but I always whenever something comes up, I'm like, do I want to work seven days a week, 24 hours a day, all encompassing on, you know, something other than what I'm doing? Not not at the moment. And, you know, because even though, you know, any VC who says that it's all encompassing, you know, I'm going to call, say that they're lying. But if you really love, you know, helping founders, then then you're always available. And I, Absolutely. you know, my founders know that if they call me, whatever time it is, if I'm awake or if they can somehow wake me up, I'll be on the phone with them or, you know, with them. And so I think for me, that's kind of the most important things. 
That's really well said. That's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. All right. I think that's that's all the time we have for today. Chad, I really want to thank you for um, for taking the time to do this. It was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. No, and thank you guys for having me. And hopefully uh, we get to do it again soon. Absolutely. Hey, well, I've, we better, I've got... We better get that call if you're, if you're, if you're starting a venture, Chad. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you guys will definitely, you're definitely on the list and, you know, happy to work with you guys and, um, you know, looking forward to doing more. 